Well, there was a blog post um, that I read this week, which I thought was quite interesting, which we may want to tackle first. Um, it was from Ander Dobo, um, who works with Flutter. Uh, I'm not sure whether uh, he's on the Flutter team. I think he is by the look of his profile on the blog post. Um, but it was a post around the progress of the Flutter and Dart package ecosystem, which post titles like that always catch my attention, <laughs> uh, at least in the last three years. Um, and it was actually quite surprising how big the Flutter package ecosystem is to me. Um, so Flutter's been around for... Um, I don't know, several years now, more than five years, I would say. Um, I, I think when it first uh, came around, a lot of people kind of thought it was just after React Native uh, did its thing. And fundamentally, it's actually quite a similar system. It's based on Dart instead of JavaScript, but JavaScript is the fundamental language behind Dart, I so I believe. Um, and it's a cross-platform framework where you can build uh, applications using different technologies for iOS and uh, macOS and other Apple platforms, as well as Android uh, and all the rest of it. Um, but then, I mean, I've paid attention to it a little bit over the years, but I haven't. I've never used it, but I've 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 not really been paying close attention. I don't think. Um, because it has a huge package ecosystem. Um, so we quite often do little quizzes here when we when we have stats like this. So so it's time for a little quiz. Um, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, total package ecosystem size right now in Dart, what would your guess be? We're about 7,000 on Swift at the moment. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's more because these ecosystems tend to be really active um and if it's based on javascript i guess there might be sort of people might be conditioned into making smaller packages so are, are we talking in size are we talking like number of packages sure yeah yeah um twenty thousand fifty thousand yeah, okay. Order of magnitude. I'll, I'll take the point. Yeah. Order of magnitude <laughs> is, is correct. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but actually, more, in, more impressive than that is the rate of growth. So the post says that the ecosystem grew 26% during 2023 from 38,000 to 48,000 uh, by the end of last year, which that's a significant uh growth um and also so they have a package uh index um site as well um which i believe is is kind of an official package index site um uh yeah i'm not 100 percent sure on this but um i believe that so on the on the homepage of pub.dev which is their package index um it says supported by google so i i'm not entirely sure whether that means it's a google like it's, it's under development by Google or whether it's a similar situation to the Swift Package Index where it's supported by uh, the language owner, uh, in our case being Apple, in their case being Google. Um, so, but I thought that was quite interesting, the amount of growth and also the amount of traffic. So they give some traffic stats on the blog post as well. Um, 700,000 monthly active users going to pub.dev, which... Interesting. When you Did you say they grew... How many? Twenty six percent year over year. Twenty six percent, yeah. 
you know how much I I had the chance to look this up while you were talking. Do you know how much we grew year over year? <laughs> <laughs> that's a very that's a very good question. I it's a reverse quiz. This one. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> maybe it's because I'm closer to it, but it, it doesn't feel like our number of packages grew by 26%, but maybe I'm wrong. You're wrong. It's 27%. <laughs> 27%. Yes, That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Go Swift. <laughs> <laughs> um, I can tell you right now that we don't get 700,000 monthly active users on the package index. Oh, so. <laughs> did you say 700,000? Because I thought you said 7,000. I thought, yeah. well... No, no, no. We could we could beat 7,000, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's an enormous amount of traffic. And and I don't know, It's there's not a lot more to this post. Um, but uh, I thought that was really interesting um, yeah. seeing another package ecosystem really grow like this. Um, they also give some great, um, uh, some kind of favorites. They've got a Flutter favorites program, uh, which recognizes and helps developers discover the highest quality packages to consider using in their apps. Um, and they've, so this is, I think, a little bit like the Swift server workgroup um, incubation um, program where packages get nominated to, uh, to, to be part of this Flutter favorites. Um, and it says, right. Flutter favorites are packages that have demonstrated exceptional quality, popularity, and community engagement, making them invaluable tools for Flutter development. Um, so that's, I mean, I think that's, that's it's great to see uh, other package ecosystems thriving like this. Um, uh, and I thought it was worth highlighting to people who here who, you know, it's very easy when you're, when you're doing Swift all day to look inwards towards only what's happening within this community. And I thought this was uh, worth mentioning. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. I mean, there aren't that many language ecosystems around, you know, that you can actually compare. And it's really nice to get these data points to see, you know, where where Swift comes down to um, in terms of, you know, packages. And I was surprised by that. Well, then again, I'm not surprised because just way more um, JavaScript. Well, then again, there's lots of iOS developers, right? I mean, I, I wonder how big the the developer um, populations are on on either side. I guess there's more JavaScript, right? Uh -huh. That is probably still that's more people, but um, and iOS is is huge huge as well. So, um, interesting. It is yeah, really interesting. Yeah. I, I think. I, iOS and, and Swift in general had a little bit of a reset in their package ecosystem with Swift Package Manager being oh, kind yeah. of around for a little while, but yeah. not not possible to use within iOS and macOS projects for a while. And so there was a little bit of a kind of reset that we had in this ecosystem that, uh, I mean, Flutter's, Flutter and Dart are, are not super old technologies, but they're, I think they've been uh, around a little longer than Package Manager. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly that. Although you could also argue it's 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 not a reset in the sense that it onboarded lots of there are ways to onboard lots of Objective C and even C packages, right? So it's it's sort of in quotes True. cheating yep. a bit by onboarding existing things as packages into the ecosystem. But then again, that's that's the appeal of it, right? There, there's just um, lots of yeah tried and trusted legacy code that can be adopted and and um, be used in in swift which is which is great so yeah interesting one thing that they uh, also do which i quite liked was um uh, they haven't actually published one for a couple of months but i guess we've had we've had christmas uh, and the holidays get in in the way the last couple of months they they do um uh, a package of the week uh, video which looks to be 
very slickly produced. It's kind of got this animation with it, and someone goes into one of the packages and and kind of talks about it. Um, so there's obviously quite significant effort behind uh, their package ecosystem. They're putting a lot of work into it. Oh, you're saying we need to beef up our YouTube game a bit? <laughs> if 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 we do, it's you doing it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> no, no YouTube career in, <laughs> in your near future. <laughs> I, I, it, it's already, it's already the worst part of of producing the podcast is making the YouTube video. <laughs> <laughs> and that's and that's with it being still right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> um. Well, we've also got a bit of a small piece of follow-up as well. Last time we talked about um, the benchmarking package and I thought I'd said it when I talked about it, but when listening back, I realized I actually didn't spell it out explicitly that um, this package allows benchmarking, a baselining of your benchmarks. So effectively doing the exactly the same thing as you can do in Xcode when you run your performance tests, your measurement tests there, you can, I think you could right click on the tests and you can recall a baseline that then future runs are tested against. And you can do the exact same thing here. The advantage being it's you now run via Swift PM. So you can run it through your normal um, test machinery there uh, and um, on Linux as well, which is really nice. And if you are interested in seeing how that works, the Swift Neo package actually has um, benchmarks in it and that use those baselines. Um, so take a look at that. And thanks again for Joachim Hasila for pointing this out to me after the podcast. Oh, interesting. Yeah. There's one other thing that I want to talk about uh, this week before we get to package recommendations. And, and that is that there's, I think, what is quite a famous um, uh, kind of warning to all software developers when talking about blogging. Um, and all software developers I think are susceptible to the fact that when they decide to write a blog post, their first thought is, well, how am I going to write the blog software that that I'll then write my blog post in? And there are so many pieces of blog software that have been started um, and then had one post written for them and have never, <laughs> never been posted to again, uh, that it's become a bit of a, a kind of... Uh, a, a running joke uh, that that the first thing that a software developer will do when wanting to write a blog post is start to write blog software. Well, if you're a 10x programmer, you actually start writing an editor first, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so guess what I did yesterday? Well, <laughs> I, 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 I know really, you've already seen I the can't really <laughs> fake surprise now because I've seen the <laughs> I've seen the commit history. You've seen the pull request, yeah. <clears throat> um, so yes, I I rewrote our blog yesterday. Um, so there was a couple of reasons to do it. Um, we're actually we're in a, a period of trying to fix some of our SEO at the moment. We're, we're having some some. I, I think we've talked about it on the podcast before. Um, and so we're in a bit of a, oh, certainly I'm in a little bit of a, of a, um, a mission to, to fix up several things and some of the stuff needed fixing on the blog. And actually we've been in a pretty terrible situation where the blog previews, um, haven't been working for me. I don't know whether you, you run the previews, Sven, I presume you don't, um, when you, uh, review the posts, I, I'm guessing you read them just the markdown file, right? Um, I 
run the I spin up the server. So um, Visual Code has this thing where you can run a live server, and I've often spun that up and read them in the rendered output. Oh, okay, interesting. Now it's I don't I don't remember when I last did this. It I, the last one I don't I'm sure I didn't. So I'm not sure if you're referring sure. to this. This would have been broken. I think it saying? might have been a little while. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Our, our our JavaScript environment uh, needed some uh, needed some updates, and it was fine. For, it was fine in production. Like when you run the the final build of all the CSS and JavaScript, that's fine. Uh, but there are some issues with it, um, and also. You know, when we when we created that blog, in fact, I remember having the decision uh, discussion with you about the decision on whether we should even do a blog, and, and we didn't launch the site with a blog, um, and it was only after a little while that um, that we added one, um, and I think it was a good decision, but I think it was when we did it, we certainly it wasn't a hundred percent sure that it would last forever. Like it, we needed to, to kind of prove the do we actually post things to it? And while we don't post super often, we post often enough that I think it's worth having. Like we use it uh, semi-regularly. Yeah, definitely, yeah. Um, but of course, when it's outside of the main project, uh, the kind of maintenance of it falls to one side because it's never the most important uh, thing. So a couple of reasons to bring it in. We can give it a, a kind of update and a refresh. We also get to use all of the nice stuff that we have inside the package index so we can actually bring in like the supporters, which I put down the side of the blog index and things like that. Um, obviously all of the markdown comes across and we're even still using the same markdown processor, which is um, John Sundell's Inc uh, project. So the rendering between the two, uh, you know, one blog post to another should be identical. And in fact, I've I've tested it today and, and everything is looking great. Although it also made me find a whole load of problems that we had in the old blog posts, so, which I've kind of fixed up as well. So, um, so yeah, now we have um, everything just under one uh, URL. Uh, it's everything's on swiftpackageindex.com, no more subdomains. Um, there are obviously difficulties with going live with something like this, where um, you don't want to just abandon your old URLs because people will have linked to those blog posts. <clears throat> Even if it's just on social media, there will be uh, traffic coming in through those old links. So uh, I have a plan in place for setting up permanent redirects so that all the old traffic comes through and including, and this is something that it always is a little bugbear of mine, that when people do change their blog software, um, if you don't redirect your RSS URL, then the people who were subscribed are suddenly no longer subscribed and they just don't right. know that they're not subscribed because it's, you know, it doesn't error or anything. Um, so yeah. we're also going to redirect our RSS feed, of course, so that if you are subscribed, you will stay subscribed. Of course, if you'd like to update the, uh, the, the URL, that's also fine, but, um, but you will, that, that redirect, that redirect will hang around forever. Nice. Uh, is that going to be done via Cloudflare or do we run something on the existing, the old site, replace the old site with? Unfortunately, the old site, so the old site was running on GitHub pages um, and GitHub pages does not support uh, redirects. Um, right. So we could do it on Cloudflare. Um, that, that was one thing I looked into. Um, unfortunately, it needs a page rule on Cloudflare and those, if you've ever had a, a, a 
a, a cheap or free Cloudflare plan, they are very, very uh, scarce. <laughs> um, so instead, I'm going to use a uh, a site which I've used for my stuff for years and years and years now. It's called Netlify, and um, they have a free plan which is extremely generous. Um, like, for example, iOS Dev Directory runs and has always run off Netlify. Um, and several other sites that I run uh, are, are all hosted there. Um, and they do support redirect files, um, and uh, they've been incredibly reliable uh, for the years and years, more easily more than five years that I've been using them. Right. Uh, so right. they are great. And we can just upload one little text file that says, here are a list of URLs, here are a list of new URLs, and it'll serve that forever. Right, and because it's the blog subdomain, it can it can just point to that site and redirect to a slash blog. I suppose is the exactly nice. Yeah, that's exactly it. And the main um, objective here is to get the SEO under one roof because those would be or those currently are separate buckets, right? Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, I I wouldn't say that's the primary reason to do it. I think the other reasons were actually slightly more important, but. When starting to look at some of the other reasons, it's like, well, I just need to, we just need to do this. And, and, and it didn't take that long. I, I started it kind of, I think mid morning yesterday, and it was pretty much done by the end of the day yesterday, a few little tweaks and cleaning up and stuff today. Um, but it's not been, it's not been a weeks long, uh, project. So hopefully I can, I can be forgiven for writing, <laughs> writing a blog. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I mean, I, I can see the appeal. It's much easier than to preview something. And, um, the deployment process is the same one we use. The slight downside I see is that it's going to be taking a, take, going to take a little longer to deploy because all our tests have to pass before we can merge um you know that's that's our rule i mean we could obviously in a case of a blog we could decide to to you know short circuit that but that's the only downside i can see and that's not a huge problem right five minutes versus 10 or something so as as a software developer i also had to upgrade the functionality of our blog um and one thing that we get now is we get the ability to uh, preview posts uh, in a, in the actual environment. So yeah. there's a, a YAML file in the repository, uh, which is the index of all the posts, including summaries and uh, things like that. Um, and there's a published flag uh, on there. And published blog posts go to the live site, and all blog posts go to the staging site. So we can publish the entire thing, check it over, have it live on staging, um, both of us can be happy with it. And then that final pull request is simply changing the published flag from false to true. Yeah. Yeah. Even just locally previewing the thing, right. You know, you can, you can, we can just run the server locally. Sure. That's much easier than yeah. having to spin up that live server as I did in VS code in, in times past. Uh, yeah. That sounds great. The only other thing that's, um, that, that was a concern, I think it will be okay, but we should probably just, um, uh, have a look when we go through the pull request. Um, certainly it's okay locally is it's no longer a static site. So the old site was a, a published site, which runs and generates HTML that gets uploaded and no server code gets executed during blog visits. Yeah. Um, and of course this is a dynamic site based on vapor and all the rest of it. Um, and so one thing that, that my my initial attempt at creating this was um 
to get the summary out of each file on disk, but in to, to create the index page that was then opening up as many blog post files as we had on the system, which of course is is already potentially a performance issue, but but and will only get worse as we publish more. Um, so the index now is driven off one YAML file, and then it only opens the actual blog post file when you click into the uh, the page. But there is there is a an additional kind of process that's happening when people view those blog posts. But but I think it, I don't think it will have any uh, any kind of uh, performance impact at yeah. all, really. Um, shall we briefly talk about our production issues we had last week? Sure. Um, and how it was all my fault. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it, this was a joint effort <laughs> because, um, because I laid the mine and you stepped on it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. So, um, and, and as I said in our chat, that's why we have, um, pull requests, right. And have re reviews. It's, um, one person opens up the pull request, the other reviews. And if something goes bad, yeah, both both people were involved in in getting that um, that live, so that's the way it goes. So just very briefly, what happened? We had some, yeah, I mean, sort of downtime. We had a crash in production, um, which led to our system sometimes showing five um, hundreds um, in Cloudflare and and timing out. Um, and crashes have been really rare. Actually, we've been blessed by very few crashes and that's really thanks to Swift's focus on safety. Um, and then of course the first real issue we have with crashes is when we opt out of the safety mechanisms, right? Because what happened is we we triggered a force unwrap <laughs> where we had a try with a bang because we can't crash here. And the reason was, I'm just going to call it reason A, you know, we ha there wasn't even a comment at the place where that force unwrap is, you know, there's a, there's this can't we can force unwrap here because of reason A. <laughs> and of, Famous last words. Of course, what happens is your program says, "Well, I'll just make you crash because of reason B." Then, <laughs> which is a reason you didn't consider, and that's what happened here. Um, it's it's just a great example where your exemptions hold for a very very long time and until until they don't anymore, and and a completely different thing blows up, and and then. You no, know, just goes through all the layers and and nukes um, the service. Um, what I really like is we have a if we consider this a problem that needs fixing, um, we actually have a very easy way of finding all the places where we've been doing this. Right, like Swift is is very nice in that you have to explicitly force this issue. So if we just search for for try bang in the code base, we'd find all the places where we're doing this or, or similar things. We would have an easy time auditing where we're using unsafe mechanisms and then review um, if our assumptions still hold there. So that's that's a really nice thing about it. Uh, we, we explicitly forced it. And, and when I say we, it was me who wrote that uh, try bang uh -huh. and made the assumption that reason A holds and, and reason A still holds. It's just that there's also reason B, <laughs> which, which uh, I wasn't aware of at the time I wrote this. Um, and so that's really the main story here that sometimes your assumptions change and uh, um, yeah, that's that's how stuff goes wrong, right? Um, where this maybe ties into future Swift changes is that um, the the reason this blew up is that 
the, the system is throwing under the hood. And I thought there's only one way it can throw, but there's actually a different way it can throw as well. Um, I was expecting like database errors due to a join failing to be the source of throws and they can't happen because of the query we're running. They, they can't really throw and they never have. The problem is the other issue that can happen is that the payload that's being decoded can also have a decoding error and that I did not consider at the time. And if you've been following um, Swift evolution, you may have seen that there's a proposal that's been accepted, which is typed throws. Right now, if you have throws there, they're really the, just this error protocol and they're not typed in any way. So you can't really make very strong assumptions about what's, what's throwing. Like I looked at, you know, there's a call that's try and I know all I know, I'm going to get an error back and I, I can't really do much with it. With type throws, the underlying API could actually throw a, an error that is strongly typed, you know, not just that error protocol, but really a, it could be, for instance, an enum that enumerates all the different error cases that happen. And if that had been the case, mm -hmm. I'd have been alerted to all the different ways in which this can crash. And then I'd, I'd have seen, okay, this isn't just a database you know, thing that might go wrong. Decoding might also go wrong. Um, now, I don't think APIs will actually adopt it in this case because it's, you know, that's a huge thing to do. And this is more, I think, type throws in the motivation for the pitch has been more about very, very narrow use cases of this. You know, you'd use this where you, you have a subsystem that really has only a handful of different error states that it's throwing where you really want to be sure that you gather all that. This call that I made has just way too many different things that might go wrong, even if you just consider database things. Uh, there's just too too many things that might come out of a database, especially because, you know, it's it's um, even different database technologies that could be under under the hood, right? We're using Postgres, but other adopters of the API might be using SQLite and MySQL. So it would be really hard to enumerate all the error cases there. But I, I really wanted to raise this, that there are mechanisms in the future that might be helpful to address this problem if you have a domain that has a very narrow um, you know, set of errors that might happen, that it might really help make your decisions whether it's safe to force unwrap. Because you know when you see it's an enum with four cases and you can ensure that those four cases are excluded or you know handled elsewhere, it will give you more confidence when you when you do the try bang and I I well I certainly shouldn't have looking at the result but <laughs> it's a, it's um interesting interesting thing we saw yeah whenever you find yourself writing that comment this can't crash it's it's uh it sets off a chain of events that will eventually <laughs> lead to a late night yeah always bites you in the end <laughs> but the good news is we are back up and running um we, we actually we, we we only there was only a very i don't know whether there was any actual 100% downtime certainly the site was slow for a little while and there were timeouts but i don't think the site ever completely went offline because of it no i don't think so because what happened is that only a handful of pages actually led to the crash so people would have to visit those pages and then when that happened a node was out for a minute and the problem the reason it was out for a minute is is a reason that we're following up on that's actually not our fault um backtracing unfortunately at the moment is taking very long to 
render the backtrace. And that's a new change in 5.9.2. Previously, we actually would have crashed really quickly and probably people wouldn't have hit, uh, have issue, had issues with the site being down, except for those pages explicitly. The problem we actually incurred a little more, we actually hit timeouts was because of the backtracing, uh, taking so much time and locking out nodes, um, which was a bit unfortunate and, and compounding with, with our um, self-inflicted issue. Lots to uh, lots to learn from. Right. Do we have any other news or shall we do some packages? I think it's package time. Um, why don't I kick us off this week? Um, and I'll kick us off with a package called Vortex um, from Paul Hudson. Um, so Vortex is um, well. Let's take the let's take the description direct from the README. Vortex is a powerful, high-performance particle system for SwiftUI, allowing you to create beautiful effects such as fire, rain, smoke, and snow in only a few lines of code. Now that's written like a true marketing professional, Paul. Um, <laughs> I feel I feel the desire to fill my apps with uh, with particle effects after that, but it's 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 actually looking great. So um, it uses um, uh, you can you can add a vortex effect to any kind of SwiftUI view. So you can take, for example, a circle or a rectangle or something like that, or presumably even something like a, a, a text box or a label or something like that, and add um particle effects to it uh defined by rain fireworks fireflies magic um smoke that kind of stuff um this is probably not the kind of thing that you're going to use every single day <laughs> um but there are genuine uses for a package like this in uh in, in ios and mac os apps the most common one is whenever the 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 person using your application has just completed uh, some kind of positive event, whether that's uh, successfully doing the task that the app was designed to do, or whether it was purchasing your upgrade to an in-app purchase or something like that. Um, I've quite often seen people uh, throw up a load of confetti on on the view uh, and have it rain down. Uh, and I can imagine that you could use particle effects of all sorts. In fact, there is a confetti effect uh, in this as well. Um, but again, it's, I mean, as you'd expect from Paul, it's a, it's a wonderfully written uh, readme file, lots of example code, um, and I thought it was worth, uh, worth highlighting. Nice. Are there some examples? Can, can you preview um, what the package offers? Sure. I mean, there are there are animated um, uh, gifs on the uh, the readme file. That's probably the best way to to get a sense of uh, of what it does. Right. Um, nice. Yeah. And and the fact that it looks like there is a demo. In fact, it says the repository contains a cross-platform sample project demonstrating all the presets. Oh, nice. Um, and I do believe you can actually make your own. You can make your own particles too, if you'd like to. Nice. If the default confetti is not confetti-like enough, then you may make your own confetti. Custom confetti. Yeah, I saw this flyby, um, but I I hadn't actually looked at it. Uh, the iOS stuff, I sort of, I always, yeah, I, I expect you to pick those up. <laughs> <laughs> Even though it's been it's been a while since I wrote an iOS app, but but I still, I think I still have more interest in it than you. Well, there's this newsletter, right? What's the title? I don't I don't recall. <laughs> I, I really, I really, um, I, I messed up with several things when I named that newsletter. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't think it would still be going 13 years later. <laughs> 
Right, my first package is called Language Detector by Ali Sheikhizadeh and Hadi Shargi. Um, and this is an interesting package. It's a small package, 400 kilobytes. I, I looked it up because I couldn't believe it's that small. And it offers language detection for 110 languages, according to the README. I didn't actually count. I, I trust I trust that metric. But it's it's a long list. Um, and I was really curious how that could work without you know either making online requests to a service. It doesn't. Um, or embedding some kind of dictionary language model, you know, and that I would have expected to be quite large or at least larger than 400k. Mm -hmm. So I've, I've poked around a bit and it, it wasn't hard because it's, it's not a big package, but what it's doing under the hood, from what I understand, is, is doing frequency analysis on letters and syllables. So it just has small dictionaries in there with, um, you know, like letters and syllables and then uh, floats against them, which I presume are you know frequencies in in strings, um, and that's why this whole thing is rather small because these dictionaries are then small. I was curious how well that works, so I took a couple of paragraphs from some European newspapers, and it works. So each in each case, and I I tried the you know the the, the big ones, um, English obviously, um, German, French, Spanish, and it, uh, Italian I think as well, and it worked for all those. Um, however, there's also, this spits out not just a single language, but like a, a little dictionary of language and then a, a number. And it's not documented, but I'm pretty sure the number is the confidence. And that was, they were quite quite close together um, sometimes, maybe a bit too close for confidence if you if you really need this to be 100%. But I think it's a, it's a great package if you want to... For instance, you know, you have a post, imagine you have a Mastodon client and Mastodon allows you to set the language you're posting in. And that might be something you toss in there where you give, you, you pre-configure the selection. You know, it's a, it's a low cost thing to do. Mm -hmm. Even if it's wrong, it's not terrible. And it might be a good starting point. It might get lots of guesses right. So I think if, you're, if your goal is to get a good hit rate on your guesses, but you don't need 100% and you don't need, you know, don't want to ship a huge library of stuff. I think that's a great package to try um, and give this a spin. And just a nice, it's always nice to prove that you don't always need uh, AI, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's that's why I was really curious if, if it's something like that. I mean, obviously, you know, there's lots of um, quality uh, is in your estimates you can gain by throwing more at it, but sometimes it you don't need it, right? You, the, the quick thing, even though you, there's a trade-off, right? You have a lower footprint and faster response, um, immediate thing um, for, you know, maybe just 80% um, hit rate or something like that. I, I don't know what it actually is, but it, yeah, certainly worth trying and, and giving it a look. That's great. Sounds uh, interesting. My, um, my next package is, um, by Kevin Mullins, and uh, it's a package called Grace Language. Um, and <laughs> as I was preparing for today's podcast and thinking about how to talk about the engineering of a blog system <laughs> that I did yesterday, um, this this rings a bell as well in that if you want to allow uh, plugins or some kind of scripting inside your iOS language, uh, your iOS or Mac application, um, what's the first thing you do is you design your own language first, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> right after the editor, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm not sure. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm not sure that that's how this came about, but it is a new language called Grace, um, and it is apparently a Turing-complete scripting language written in Swift um, that can be used in applications that are then written in Swift. So um, it is... Um, the language itself has enumerations and structs and functions and things like that. Um, I didn't spot anything in the README about it being object orientated. There's certainly no definitions of, of classes or anything like that. It may just be a, uh, a kind of, a, 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 what do they call them, procedural uh, language. Um, but, um, but certainly the syntax looks nice enough and you can very easily uh, bring up a grace runtime inside a swift environment and run uh scripts or other code that's been written in this grace language so um uh it's the kind of thing i know a lot of applications um when they look for a scripting language like this um i think lua is quite uh popular isn't it yeah you see that pop up a lot i think i think a lot of that is due to wow world of warcraft using it as as it's uh it's uh it scripting did. language yeah, yeah. Oh, I, think, I believe it still does yeah yeah well yeah, yeah certainly yeah interesting so is are there any interfaces how how would you how would you use that is it just for computations or can it actually interface into the system back you know like calling you know dialogues or shortcuts or stuff like that that is a really great question <laughs> really, really great question. Here we go. <laughs> I don't know. Um, let me have a quick look. In fact, I was just scrolling up and down to see if I could see that. Um, I can't. Although maybe I can. It keeps a lot of the examples call app print, which I wonder if that's calling back to the host language. I I would I would recommend that if this is interesting to you that that you go to the readme and give it a thorough read, which is something I didn't do. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. Right. My second pick is called Versioned Codable by Jonathan Rothwell. And this is a really nice package, um, which one I probably would use um, if if I had a use case, or might even have one in the future. Um, so this is a pack to deal with versioning of codable types. Um, and we all know that problem, right? We've defined a codable type in our application and we've saved some data. And then we want to change that codable type. And we have data on disk or worse, some elsewhere, you know, users have, have it. Um, there are other services that use it and we are kind of stuck, right? If we change the type, we can't decode the old data. Um, we don't, we want to change it because, you know, that's just the, the thing you want to do. You have no requirements, stuff like that. What do you actually do? Um, and if you've worked with database systems, you've likely come across this concept um, there, which is called migrations, where for every change in data format, you have a a system that migrates your data um, and then you know, allows you to to um, interface with it and uh, write it and read it again. You know, like if there's a, an, a new field, if you have a field change or you remove a field, you know, you have these migrations where you um, migrate your data over. And version codable does something similar for your codable types. Um, and it works the way that each type, each version of your type is represented by a codable struct, just a plain old codable struct. Um, and then you adopt a version codable protocol. And what this does, it 
but you declare what the previous version is and then you define an initializer to instantiate that new type from the old type. And that then allows the system to lift up. If it encounters an older version, it goes through the chain until it arrives at the latest version or whichever version you actually want to decode. You don't need to, you can decode any version along the chain. But what you effectively set up is a, a sort of linked list of versions and whichever version you have, you know, gets, goes into the chain and then, you know, you just keep on um, migrating them forward until you end up at the place where you want to be. It's really nice, a very simple interface, very obvious how you would use it. Um, a nice readme and documentation to explain how that works. Um, it just, it also works in a playground, so you can just fiddle around with it there, see how that works. And uh, uh, really nice thing that he, uh, the author, Jonathan, has laid out that um, there's a bit of boilerplate there. It's not a huge amount, but um, I think he's planning to use macros to even do away with some of that. So this this looks like a really nice package if you have the need for a versioning of codable types. That sounds great. Give it a look. Version codable by Jonathan Rothwell. Very good. So um, I think that's probably enough packages for today. I think um, it is, yeah. So... Uh, Yet again, we come to the end of another episode and we'll be back in a couple of weeks with some more news, hopefully less news about crashing uh, <laughs> and less news about writing our own blog engines and more news about the wonderful uh, other projects that we're going to embark on this year instead. <laughs> Absolutely. Enough with the crashes. See you in two weeks. Bye-bye. Exactly. See you then. Bye-bye. <laughs>